Hi neighbor, I'm Jacob, and I'd like to welcome you to the Park Less Traveled Podcast, your exclusive source to learn about the less visited hidden gems of the National Park Service. Instead of rehashing facts about the over-publicized and over-visited parks like Yellowstone, the Statue of Liberty, and Arches, we'll only focus on parks that you may not have known were out there, and give you the rundown on fantastic national parks around the country that deserve more attention. As of the recording of this episode, there are a staggering 423 national parks in the United States, and more are added every year. If you're like me, parks like Yellowstone are hundreds of miles away, but you may be surprised to learn that there are many fascinating national parks in your own backyard. So what are you waiting for? Join me as we explore these national treasures. What will you discover in the park less traveled? Before we dive into this episode's parks, I just want to mention that this podcast has been made possible by a generous grant from Nature Valley through the National Park Conservation Association. Thank you for joining me for episode three, where we're going to take a look at a fascinating park that often gets overlooked in the field of African American history. Although every park has some connection to this universal aspect of American history, there are definitely some more popular sites that get a lot of attention in the history books. Almost everyone can recognize stories like Harriet Tubman's heroic deeds on the Underground Railroad, the double victory of the Tuskegee Airmen who fought Nazis and domestic racism in World War II, and the Freedom Riders who protested segregation on public transportation under the constant threat of violence on the highways of the South. But what about the stories of those that also defined the course of history, but have been forgotten by the textbooks? We'd like to help you rediscover some of these stories and a park that preserves them. For this episode's park, we're going to talk about Camp Nelson National Monument, a Civil War era site in Kentucky that quickly became the center of recruitment for black soldiers, often called United States Colored Troops or USCTs. Many of these men were formerly enslaved until they ran away from their enslavers to join the ranks of the Federal Army. Now, with muskets in hand, they began a new fight for their freedom. And we have a special guest joining us today who can tell us all about it. Today, we're joined by Ernie Price, who's the superintendent of Camp Nelson National Monument. It's one of the newest units of the National Park Service. So, Ernie, since your park is quite new, can you tell us a little bit about how and why Camp Nelson National Monument was created as a Park Service unit? Sure, yeah, we are quite new. You know, the park technically was created in October 2018 by a presidential proclamation using the Antiquities Act. Uh, but really, the National Park Service hasn't gotten its teeth deep into the park really until about a year and a half ago. I arrived uh, on site in July of 2020. And so I've been here just, just over a year, hard to believe. And I was the first permanent Park Service employee to, to come here. And since then, especially in the last five, six months, I'm thrilled to say that we've, we've really added a lot of staff and we're almost full staff now. In describing how the park forms, we have to give a lot of credit to Jesmond County. Jesmond County, Kentucky, which we're about 20 miles south of Lexington, pretty much in the center of the state. I think if you put Kentucky on a nail, it would almost balance near us. The county really deserves immense credit for buying up the three farms that made up the core of Camp Nelson and preserving it back in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They even made a more recent purchase in 2015 kind of the, the big missing piece. And now all three of those farms, it's about 465 acres, now make up Camp Nelson National Monument. 
gosh, kudos to Jesmond County for pulling this off because the more I learn about how they did this, the more impressed I am. 95 out of 100 counties in this country probably wouldn't have pulled this off. And, and that's not a stab at any other county. It's just, it doesn't look like it should have worked and they did it. You know, if it wasn't for what they did, obviously we, the National Park Service, wouldn't be here today. There'd be no National Monument at Camp Nelson. Hats off to that grassroots effort to preserve some key acreage that is truly nationally significant. I'm glad to hear that you have all that land preserved for future generations. Now, I know that you're fairly new and most of your existence has been through the COVID era, but do you have a general estimate on about how many people would visit Camp Nelson on any given day? I think the technical term is very few. You're right, we don't know because, you know, when I got here last summer, our visitor center wasn't open to the public. Uh, the county had closed it before I got here because of the pandemic. We did reopen the visitor center on June 16th this summer. And so we've had a little bit of a taste of visitation. And I'll be honest, we were hungry for that because what would visitors ask? What would they want to know? Would they have any preconceived notions of what Camp Nelson was? Assuming that it doesn't have the name recognition of a Fort Sumter or a Gettysburg. But having said that, it's been slow. I mean, a good day for us would right now would be 40, 50 people in a day. And that's a good day. And we have other days we don't even hit 20. June and July actually weren't that bad. Here recently, the school's getting back into session. It's kind of dropped off, not to mention it's blazing hot. But yeah, it's only a very small sampling. And I'm sure we're not in the consciousness of a lot of people that are planning a trip. And I'm sure there's still a lot of people that aren't planning trips. Really too soon to tell. This episode, we're focusing specifically on African-American history. And I know that your park is steeped in that. So why do you think it's important for the public to hear about the stories of the men who served at Camp Nelson? You and I and lots of people have, have studied the Civil War for years. And I consider myself a student of the Civil War. And I've always felt that the Civil War remains relevant in the United States history and in its present. But I think I feel that way more now than ever in my life. I think the Civil War is even more relevant than ever in my lifetime, at least. What timing, what a chance to be at the ground level of building a national monument. And when I say build it, I obviously don't mean the land or the structures that are there, but building the staff and establishing the culture of that group and determining interpretive themes and exhibitry and media and all the ways that you're going to share this story with people. What an amazing time to be doing that at Camp Nelson, where you are instantly overwhelmed with the complexities of this story. Even the most veteran students of the Civil War, I mean, Kentucky is hardcore stuff. You, you come in and you think, oh, well, it's this uh, federal camp in Kentucky, which is a border state, and it's a slave state. And so, oh, a lot of African-Americans poured into the camp seeking freedom. That doesn't even scratch the surface. It's so much more complicated than that. I'm struck by, first of all, in a lot of our Civil War sites uh, for the last 25 years, we've been far more conscientious about the story of enslavement and the role that it played in the war and the role that emancipation played in the outcome of the war. However, at Camp Nelson, it strikes me how much we're dealing with not only the process of emancipation, but individuals taking the matter into their own hands and self-emancipating, or at least attempting to. That's a powerful story. If I may, I'll give you an example right now of the complexities that I'm talking about, if this suits now. 
For example, the camp started in the spring of 1863. When General Burnside comes to the Department of the Ohio, he needs to deliver on a promise that Lincoln made to liberate East Tennessee. And so it's going to be Burnside's job to do that. And he decides to set up a supply base kind of in south central Kentucky, somewhere south of Lexington and south of Nicholasville for the Kentucky geographers out there. He does that. And that's all it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a recruiting station for African-American soldiers who had become USCTs. In fact, in 1863, it was more known as a supply station and a recruiting and training station for white soldiers. There's parts of seven regiments of white units, Kentucky and Tennessee soldiers formed there. But as you go on into the summer and fall of 63, this camp is large. It's 4,000 acres. It's over 300 buildings. There's a series of entrenchments and earthworks that are built to protect the fort. A lot of the fort, we know at least some of it, a significant amount of it was built because the United States government contracted impressed laborers, enslaved people from slave owners so that the enslaved people could come in and build the camp along with engineers and other laborers too. That was in 63. And we're doing research now to determine because the good news is Here's our crack at pre-1870 African-American history. We have names. Because the government was paying the slave owners, they kept ledgers. And so now we have the name of the worker, the county that he came from, and his owner. And as I keep saying he, I'm also reminded that we've discovered at least nine women who were impressed laborers too. What we're seeing though is in 64, many of these men are actually gonna come back to Camp Nelson and they're gonna become United States Colored Troops and fight in a war whose principal result will be the abolishment of slavery, which is what they were when they built the fort that would, I mean, it's just a vicious circle, triangle, whatever. And yeah. it's that complicated. That's amazing to me. Sounds like a lot to dig into and uh, really get you thinking about what things were like on the ground there during this whole right. process of emancipation. Are there any specific stories of some of those men that really stand out to you? I know that you're probably still doing a lot of research with it, but is there any name that you would associate having a unique story? You're right. We are still, we're learning this on a daily basis, and there are a lot. I think of Gabriel Burdett. He was down in Garrard County, which is just south of Jesmond County, and he was a member of a I say integrated church, but it was a church that had the white congregation and there was a black congregation within it that was allowed to exist. And he even had the permission to deliver sermons to the black congregation and develop his gift. And then we found his name on the list of impressed laborers. So he gets brought to Camp Nelson. And then what's going to happen later, though, he's going to be principal in creating a congregation inside the home for colored refugees, it was known. So, you know, I just a moment ago, I focused on the men who became USCT soldiers, but there's lots of other men, too young, too old, women, children, that are going to become refugees at Camp Nelson, people who won't become soldiers. But the role of the church, Gabriel Burdett kind of leading this charge. There's also another man named John Fee. He's actually white. And he comes into the camp, and his mission is to establish a school. And he was an abolitionist before, during the war, but his idea was the abolition of slavery by itself wasn't enough. If you don't bring education to tag along with that emancipation, what are you really doing? 
in the end? What's the change? Uh, how, do, mm -hmm. how, we all, how could things really change? So these two guys are leading these movements within the camp and they're met with resistance at times. They have successes at times and their stories will continue at Camp Nelson after the Civil War. And that's another message I would like to share here is that Camp Nelson is very much a Civil War park, but there's two things that are very unique about it. One, there's no battlefield. And two, the story doesn't end in 1865. The camp will close in the summer of 1866. Here at the National Monument, the story goes beyond that because some of the United States Colored Troops and their families won't have any place to go when the camp closes. And so the home for colored refugees, the people who stay there, it'll actually become its own community called Ariel uh, after the war. And John Fee and Gabriel Burdett and other leaders, black and white, will do wonderful things to make that community successful. And opportunities for African-American families that you just don't normally see in 1866 and into the 1870s, we have a highway running through the park, but 458 <laughs> acres of the park are on the east side of Highway 27, and that's the core of the camp. But there are seven acres on the other side of the highway, and that turnpike was there during the Civil War, the Lexington Danville Turnpike. But on the other side of the road is the Fee Memorial Church, which was a church that was built in the community of Ariel um, and named in honor of John Fee, who did so much to give opportunity to the African-American families that were settling in the area. But I wanna add, most African-American families left Camp Nelson after the war. Mm -hmm. The aerial community, which would later become known as the Hall, today it's known as the Hall community, most of the people there, they represented a small fraction of the soldiers and families that had been at Camp Nelson. Most sought jobs and opportunities in Ohio, Later in the 1870s, we'll see exodusters headed to Kansas uh, and things like that. Some even will return to farms where they employed the skills that they had. But the folks that could stay in Ariel and chose to, not only did they have an opportunity to own a home, but they had a church and they had a school and their kids could become educated at a time that I would say that that wasn't the common experience for African-American families around most of Kentucky or even the South or the nation for that matter. And I think what you brought up is really important in a lot of civil war circles. You know, they talk about the battlefield, they talk about military tactics and maybe even the emancipation process, but they don't really talk about what happens to the families of those emancipated soldiers that join up to fight for their freedom in a blue uniform. You just don't hear about them. I mean, I think about the movie glory. You don't hear about any of those soldiers, families at all. Mm -hmm. And I, I think about the touchstones that we talk about in the Civil War, like Andersonville, even in Arlington, right next to the Robert E. Lee home. These places had thriving African-American communities that developed after the war. And even though the land is there, those communities are largely gone now and they're not talked about because the structures were destroyed for other purposes and sometimes very maliciously by communities in the, even in the 1870s and 80s. I really appreciate that your site is really grappling with those stories and you're talking about what this military service means even post-Civil War for those families. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, what is your favorite place to visit in the park? I know that you mentioned the town of Ariel. Are there certain structures or buildings that still stand that people should really seek out? Well, Ariel is a modern community today. It's uh, it's really, it's a mixed race community now. 
there are people that live in the Hall community today who are descendants of USCTs at Camp Nelson. Gosh, that's fascinating, right? But there are other people that have moved in in the last 50 years who aren't connected at all to Camp Nelson historically. They just live there. So there's a whole study about rise and fall of the Ariel Hall community. For your audience who may not be familiar with Kentucky, it's all about horses and bourbon, right? I mean, <laughs> and, uh, you know, right after the Civil War in the late 1860s, the Kentucky River runs right through this area. And mm -hmm. it was part of why the engineers picked the spot because of the protection that the river afforded the would-be camp. Anyway, along that river, very close to the Hall community in the late 1860s, so right after the war, a distillery was built in true Kentucky fashion, uh, the E.J. Curley Distillery, and it employed a lot of people, some who lived in Ariel, mm -hmm. and then just down the road from there was a white community called Poor Town. And the distillery, of course, employed people from both those communities, and it helped. So, you know, we had a church, we had a school, we had a job, and we had a house. Pretty good times overall, as far as an opportunity anyway. But 1919 was a game changer. Prohibition. A lot of the jobs went away for a while. It seems that the community never quite rebounded from that. And so what happens is in the 1920s and 30s, you still have, you know, grandchildren of USCTs living there. But as the children get older, they don't have to stay at school there. In fact, in 1924, the school left mm -hmm. because now there were opportunities elsewhere in the state and around the country. People could take other jobs in Cincinnati or Indianapolis and places like that. And then when the kids got educated and grew up, a lot of them didn't come back. And so after World War II, you just kind of see a decline. The congregation at the church, which is really a descendant congregation from Camp Nelson itself, finally petered out in the early 1990s. That's kind of how it played out. But there's a lot of things I think that we, the National Park Service, can, can talk about at the Hall community and the Fee Church. The church is really the only building there that has a direct connection to the academy and to the refugees that really established that community. The other houses there are, are mostly 20th century homes. It's still a very small community. The fact that there are descendants living there is just awesome. And I, I've gotten to talk to a few of these folks. And in fact, I'm really happy that the park has a funded project right now, an oral history project to document the creation of this park. So we can interview the people from all different aspects who had some hand or some perspective of how this park got created. So we're going to try to capture that history orally now that hopefully will be beneficial for some future administrative history. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you really have a close bond with the community in the area and with the families that saw this history unfolding before them. I think people are kind of proud, you know, that their story would be considered nationally significant and that there would be a national monument there today. I'm sure there's lots of people out there with all kinds of opinions about the National Park Service or about history in general or whatever, but people that I talk to anyway and that I know about seem to be quite excited about all of this. So it's nice to be in a community like that where there's a lot of positive energy. I assume that the community has its own organizations and other sites related to your story but may not be in the park. So what sites would you suggest visitors look at if they want to get a broader and richer history of the area and of your story. That actually ties into something that I wanted to mention, so thank you. The camp closed in 1866, and I just would like to invite people to consider that the camp didn't just close, because people come 
today to the monument and you see the earthworks and remnants of the old forts and things like that. I should also mention there's one period house that was standing there before the Civil War and it's still there now and it was used as officers quarters during the war. It's called the Perry House. Locally it's known as the White House. But that's really the only period structure we have. And so out on this big open green space, it's a very archaeological site. And so that can be challenging. You show up and you're thinking, oh, this was basically a city. It was an industrial center. There was running water. There was a bakery. There were mills and shops and metal shops. And it's incredible what this place produced. At its peak, it was the second largest city in Kentucky. They had stables for 2,000 horses and corrals for 14,000 horses and mules. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's immense. I said before that it's not a battlefield and therefore we get to make things like emancipation, but also the logistics of war, primary themes. And that logistics story is amazing in itself. And all parks have that, right? I mean, those armies don't just show up at Gettysburg. <laughs> But here at Camp Nelson, you can actually get into how did you move all that material to Knoxville, Tennessee for the Eastern Tennessee campaign? How much did those wagons hauling 2,500 pounds and you need 150 wagons? And then, you know, how many horses does that take? And oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I'm straying from the question. <laughs> but, but what I was going to say, though, is you could get to the park today and say, oh, the camp just kind of rotted away and, and fell apart. No. It, the camp did not rot away. It was intentionally dismantled. That's a much more powerful statement than it may seem like on the surface. And when the government announced that Camp Nelson would be closed a full year after the war was over, there was a lot of concern expressed among the local population about what was going to happen at Camp Nelson after it closed. Dr. Amy Taylor at the University of Kentucky wrote a book called Embattled Freedom, and it talks a lot about the experiences of African-Americans coming into federal camps like Fort Monroe and Helena, Arkansas. And Camp Nelson is about a third of her book, too. So it's a good read to begin thinking about the issues that faced formerly enslaved people that made their way into this camp. What were they faced with? It was often not pleasant. It wasn't just this welcome arms of freedom. She does a great job of addressing that. But she also talks about that the pressure on the government to not only close the camp, but dismantle it and to make sure that refugees didn't stay around, that this was not going to become some haven for formerly enslaved people. And she makes the point that there's almost an intersection where the government is faced with what to do at a place like Camp Nelson. And there's other places like Camp Nelson around the country. And what history shows us is that the choice was made and it was to dismantle the camp and discourage any formerly enslaved people staying in the area. And the land would revert back to the people who originally owned it, which is understandable, but in many cases were slaveholders and or supporters of the Confederacy. And that was the choice that was made in the summer of 1866. And so we talked earlier about the relevance of the site and that's, Wow, 2021, what an interesting time to be talking about a story like that and to examine it for what it is and what's behind that and um, to learn something about ourselves. That these things that we talk about today are not new. <laughs> they have history, they have roots. Camp Nelson is a place to explore that. 
Now, to answer your question, when the camp was dismantled, there were soldiers and civilians, interestingly enough, white and black, that were buried in the camp cemetery known as graveyard number one, kind of on the northern end of the camp, which is in the monument today. And then there's an obelisk there today marking the site of graveyard number one. But in 1866, when the camp was closed, dismantled, the government also specifically took the 217 soldiers that were buried in graveyard number one and reinterred them to the southern part of the camp mm. and called it graveyard number two. And then in 1868, that military cemetery would become known as Camp Nelson National Cemetery, which is still there today. And it's still a functioning cemetery. There are funerals there every day. There's one today, in fact. In that cemetery, there are about 2,500 Civil War soldiers, soldiers from Perryville, mm -hmm. soldiers that died in Camp Nelson. Again, white and black. There's a lot of Ninth Corps soldiers that do time at Camp Nelson, and some of them die while they're there. There's a lot of USCTs. There's over 800 USCTs buried at Camp Nelson National Cemetery. Pretty much the whole southern boundary of the National Monument is the cemetery. And the cemetery was also part of the camp in the 1860s. So I think it's kind of nice. It's poetic that the National Cemetery was actually put on the grounds of Camp Nelson and that there's such an indelible link between the camp and the cemetery. And people can visit both today. Uh, they're right next to one another. And you said that when those soldiers were buried, they were buried in an integrated way. They weren't separated out from each other. Yes and no. The rows are segregated. So it'll be a whole row of USCTs or a whole row of white soldiers, but they yeah. are in the same section of the old cemetery. So right. I guess partially, maybe, you know, it's not random. They are sectioned off by rows, and so they are segregated, I would say, but they are both in that old section. So as you walk around that section of the cemetery, you know, you'll see the USCTs and white Civil War soldiers, too. That's an integral part. There are a lot of other things that you can see for the hardcore military students. The military installation in central Kentucky before Camp Nelson was an area called Camp Dick Robinson, and it's about nine miles south of present-day Camp Nelson. That was the first kind of federal installation in that part of the state. It was controlled by General Bull Nelson. He was in charge there. He would later be killed in Louisville by another federal officer named General Jefferson Davis, of all things. But so Camp Nelson is actually named after Bull Nelson. But he was down at Camp Dick Robinson. So that's another place. There's a number of state historical markers down there that marks that location. There's an original building down there too. So that's worth seeing. And then more broadly, about an hour and 15 minutes south of us is Mill Springs Battlefield, another new national monument, an 1862 battle there, so a precursor to Camp Nelson. But if you're coming from out of state and you're interested in the Civil War, there's a, there's a whole corridor in central Bluegrass, Kentucky, it's called, between Mill Springs and Perryville and Richmond, Kentucky, and Camp Nelson, uh, Abe Lincoln birthplace, and the Mary Todd Lincoln home in Lexington. There's all of that. And, and if you like, a lot of this is along the Bourbon Trail here in Kentucky. There's dozens of distilleries. You know, I mentioned the E.J. Curley distillery to you earlier in this conversation. It closed mm -hmm. down, I think, in the 1960s, but next year they're reopening. Camp Nelson will be on the Bourbon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's great that you can then tell that part of the history again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's really cool because I think that's going to tie in really well with with the the Ariel and Hall story. Yeah, and I, I like how you talked about you know the Civil War being very active in Kentucky because for a lot of the people listening from Indiana and Ohio and Tennessee, they think they have to make a trip to central Virginia to visit a Civil War battlefield, but there's probably sites much, much closer to them than they even anticipated or realized. So thank you for making that plug. Absolutely. You know, Camp Nelson is really a late war park because it's not really established until the summer of 63. And the big USCT story, which is what makes it a national monument. That's really an 1864 and 1865 story. So we're, I feel like we're a late war park, but a lot of Kentucky in terms of battlefields, it's basically 1862. And not to mention Morgan's raids in, into Kentucky too. So there's a lot of stuff to see in Kentucky. If you're a, a battlefield aficionado or just a Civil War student in general, there's a lot to see here. And now there's two new national park units to boot. So if you're into passport stamps or Unigrid brochures, come get them. <laughs> Although we don't have our Unigrid yet. So, but we do have a passport stamp. And now a break for this episode's featured trivia question. Are you ready? There is a national park dedicated to the African-American men who served as the country's first park rangers. Which park is it? Need a hint? These men were soldiers who received a unique nickname from the Cheyenne. The national park dedicated to the African-American soldiers who served as the country's first park rangers is Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers National Monument in Wilberforce, Ohio. The park preserves Young's home, the house owned by Captain Charles Young, who was celebrated as the country's first African-American park superintendent. During the summer of 1903, he was tasked with directing 96 African-American soldiers of Troops I and M of the 9th U.S. Cavalry to provide security and infrastructure improvements in Sequoia and General Grant National Parks. That year, the Buffalo Soldiers prevented poaching, illegal logging and grazing, as well as completing 18 miles of trail improvement. Captain Young also oversaw the construction of park roads that are still used today, having the foresight to design them to handle thousands of visitors, even though the park only saw about 100 visitors during his tenure as superintendent. One of the more visible legacies of the 9th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers in our modern world is the current National Park Service Ranger uniform, which was modeled after the Buffalo Soldiers uniform. For those who might be planning to visit Camp Nelson, what should they know before they hit the road? What are your park hours? Is there any fee to visit your park? There's no fee to visit the park right now. And I would say probably through the winter season into next spring, the visitor center and museum are open Wednesday through Sunday. But the grounds are open seven days a week, dawn till dusk. We have about five miles of trails. There's about 35 interpretive wayside markers out there on those trails. And they do a nice job. I mean, you don't walk a mile to read something about Abraham Lincoln. You read something about that spot that you walk to. It is absolutely impressive to think what they built here in 1863 and 64. I mean, the run in water just blew me away. I mean, they literally had a steam engine that pumped water 400 feet up the Kentucky River, up the Palisades, to a 500,000 gallon reservoir, and then gravity fed the water through lead pipes to key places into the camp. 
a bakery that was just huge. And we have 45 photographs taken inside the camp during the Civil War. I mean, how wow. cool is that? And the pictures yeah. have people in them. They have horses in them. One of them even has got a, it has a dog. And, and you can see USCTs. You can see blacksmiths. You can see all kinds of craftsmen doing the work of Camp Nelson. And so some of these waysides, they feature some of the photographs, which I think is really, really awesome because we rarely get to see that at our Civil War sites. We see photographs taken after the battle, but to actually see it while it's doing its thing is really cool. We've inherited a 17-minute film that the county put together, and uh, the Park Service will eventually make its own film, but this film does a great job of answering that question, what is Camp Nelson? You know, what was it? And that film can actually be seen on our website if you go to the Junior Ranger section, uh, because <laughs> if, during COVID, we have a Junior Ranger booklet and badge, but we wanted to make it doable where you could do the Junior Ranger book activities online. And some of it included watching the film, so we put the film online. So even if you come visit on a Monday or a Tuesday and hike the trails, you can still see the film on the website. We do have a museum, and like I said, we're an archaeology park, and so there has been some archaeological work done in the park over the last 20 years, and some of those things are exhibited in the museum. And I'm excited to see what will happen going forward. The archaeologist for the county park for the last 20 years has become a good friend of the National Park Unit, Dr. Stephen McBride, you know, there's that one guy on the face of the earth that knows more about a site than anybody else. Well, <laughs> it's Dr. Yeah. McBride. So we're lucky to have him really on our team. He's a great resource. So the museum is cool if you can catch it Wednesday through Sunday. One thing, though, we don't have a bookstore yet because we opened up this summer and Eastern National, I think now America's National Parks, but, you know, the company formerly known as Eastern National that runs a lot of the bookstores in Eastern uh, National Park sites. Understandably, they're not in a position to open up a small new store at a small park right. right now, but we hope to have them in there at some point. But unfortunately, we don't have that yet. The White House that I mentioned, the you know, period structure, there's a lot of work that we'll be doing in that house. So it's not open to go inside of yet, but the long-term plan is to have it open and to have it furnished as the officer's quarters that it was in the late 18, well, mid-1860s. We just acquired 85 acres of one of the farms that's in the middle of the monument. Literally, the monument has just become whole. I'm, I'm talking less than a month ago. There's a lot to do, and we'll be developing more trails, conducting archaeological surveys out on the landscape to understand more precisely where things were. But you mentioned favorite places in the park. It's rolling terrain, so the, just walking around it and getting the different views, I really enjoy. But one of the forts that we have that's still preserved is called Fort Jones. And it reminds me to remind you know your audience that of the five miles of trails that we have, about 20, 25% of those trails are actually in the woods on mm. the eastern side of the park. And there were some stone forts constructed down there on the Hickman Creek side of the camp, the eastern side of the camp. And so the Kentucky River is the west side, Hickman Creek is the east side, and the topography of those creeks, that creek and river, is what protected the camp. The forts were built on the northern part of the camp that wasn't protected by a river or a creek. But Fort Jones is a well-preserved fort, and a, a lot of its features are made out of stone. You know, I love going down there because these are not just worn earthen works. They're actual stone walls. 
and the stones mm. are covered in moss. And knowing that these forts were built with impressed labor by men, many of whom would become USCTs, it just is kind of a place that brings all of that into a, a place where all of those mm. powerful thoughts can be concentrated into a stone or a collection of stones that's in a wall. And you can stand there where people stood and stood at one of the most profound intersections in our nation's history. I'm not trying to wax poetic, but think about it. We recently did a, a video project with uh, Richmond, Petersburg, and Appomattox, and we traced the routes of the 114th and the 116th infantry, U.S. Colored Infantry units that left Camp Nelson, went to Richmond, Petersburg, and the 116th ended up at Appomattox on the morning of the surrender. Actually, Bert, Bert Dunkerley over at Richmond Battlefield made the point there were soldiers in the 116th who in the summer of 64 were enslaved. They became soldiers in the late summer of 64, were sent to Virginia in September, and then in March got reviewed by President Lincoln in Petersburg, and then in April were at the surrender at Appomattox. And all of that happened in 10 months, wow. a 10-month window. So I, I do think it's one of the most critical intersections in our nation's history. That story of these men and women and children that just crossed that incredibly important moment in time. And yeah, I'm biased, but that's the story at Camp Nelson. And it sounds like a great time to visit too for visitors to explore the site when they may be the only people out there. Really just immerse themselves in, in that place and location. You know, we always talk about the power of place. Right. Um, that's really unique right now. And then maybe, you know, those visitors come back in five, 10, 20 years oh, yeah. and see how things have changed and the development that's happened and how the Park Service continues to improve the site and tell the story in different and new and exciting ways as more research is done. Yeah, that's a great point. And some of our local visitors in the greater Lexington area who visit us, that's exactly what we tell them. It's like, hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for visiting us. And we love hearing questions because mm. We want to know what our visitors are thinking and what their questions are. When you go to Fredericksburg, they've been talking to visitors for decades and decades and decades, and they kind of know how to interpret that site and have some idea of how people process the stories at Fredericksburg and other well-known and established Civil War sites. I don't know really what people will ask and want to know about Camp Nelson, which is part of the excitement. But yeah, we invite them, say, hey, thanks for coming. But come back in even one year, and especially two, three, or five years, you know, come back and there should be different trails, new exhibits, maybe a new film, and who knows what else we will have done out on the landscape archaeologically or, you know, restoring some landscapes in some places, anything to make that visual connection and take advantage of these 45 photographs that we have, right? And go out there and, and stand in the spots where the cameraman stood and, mm -hmm. and see the landscape as they saw it and so many other exciting opportunities. And of course, I really hope that for so many years, Civil War parks, at least in the National Park Service, we want very badly, but we struggle mightily to engage in dialogue with African-American visitors to find out how do we connect this powerful place to this entire portion of our population that we don't seem to be able to do. And it's just complicated, period. It just is. I find myself saying a lot these days, it's not enough to want to engage non-white audiences. 
I mean, a lot of us want to. The challenge is, though, actually doing it. Right. How do you actually do it? So I'm hoping that maybe, just maybe, that Camp Nelson is one of those places and one of those stories that maybe everyone feels comfortable to embrace. Look, there's a lot of tragedy at Camp Nelson. You know, we can talk about expulsions with women and children dying and being neglected, and there are horrible, horrible stories. But at the end of Camp Nelson's story as a military camp, there's a lot of self-emancipation. And I'm hoping that there's a positiveness to that story that may allow a lot of different people to come in and talk about it and share their perspectives. We'd love to know questions, thoughts, perspectives, and for all the battlefields that have struggled to do this, and I've worked at some of those places, and I'm not mm -hmm. pointing fingers at anybody because it was me for a long time. I'm hoping at least that Camp Nelson might offer a slightly different venue where the dialogue and the narrative could be a little different and maybe and maybe more inviting that that results in actual participation from a lot of different people. So time will tell, but that's certainly a lofty goal of ours. And I know you also mentioned that there's a lot of families out there who kind of dispersed into different states after the war. I hope that those families can find their way back to where their family found freedom and emancipated themselves, and they can share those family stories with you to create an even broader and richer story right. at the site, make it more personal. You and I both know that, especially in the 60s and the 50s and prior to that, the National Park Service itself didn't do such a great job at welcoming African-American visitors into right. their sites, uh, even with segregated campgrounds. A lot of those management decisions that were even made at the highest levels of the government to exclude people from the land that they rightly owned as citizens of this country, it still left its mark. So with a new site, you have a unique opportunity to really live out the full embodiment of the idea that this is our full country's land and story. I think that's a, a neat opportunity. I hope so. And I, I also think because of the military records kept at the camp, I really do think it's one of those places where we might be able to penetrate that pre-1870 African-American history, that wall that so many people hit, right? Because we have first names, we have home counties, the government kept ledgers of, of these impressed laborers. That is an awful story, but they kept records. And so now all of a sudden, you know, some of these folks might become soldiers. They do have lives after the war and they have kids and grandkids. Oh my gosh, there's so many stories we're already learning. Isaac Murphy, who won the first Kentucky Derby. And back in those days, African-American jockeys were, were typical. 15 of the first 28 Kentucky Derby winners were African-American. Isaac Murphy, his father was a soldier at Camp Nelson. And as a three or four year old, he may have been a refugee at Camp Nelson. We know now that Muhammad Ali had an ancestor in the fifth United States Colored Cav. We know all kinds of things like that that are coming out. And again, these are positive things. Yes, we are a uh, less visited park. And, and I think our visitation is going to go up with time and as we get more established. But even in our limited visitation, I do see, we do see African-Americans coming to our park. We get research requests from African-American families that think they have an ancestor that was at Camp Nelson. If we've talked to a thousand people this summer, if we've had five or 10 of those interactions, but that doesn't sound like much, but you and I both know there's a lot of Civil War parks. You could go a long time before you had five African-American families ask you about a research or genealogical question at your park. 
And even in our limited pool, we have some of those already. So I'm hopeful that that's a good sign, especially with all the digitized records. Now, you know, with Fold3 and everything, we can help people make these connections. I, I'll throw this last one out too. I would like to see, I want to do everything I can to make this happen. Camp Nelson National Monument also become a research center. That this ought to be the place where you can come to visit a time before 1870, at least if you have connections. Talking to our young staff already, we're doing research. We're trying to find these things out and, and capture them and organize this information. But some of it's coming to us. Sometimes people are bringing these things to us. And so if we're that light that the moths are coming to, all right, then we have a responsibility to capture that information in an organized way and make it available to the future. We run across stories all the time about soldiers who are at Camp Nelson, and then we find out something that they did after the war that's not in a record. It's a mountain of a task, but it seems important to do that because we saw with the Civil War Soldiers and Sailors Project 40 years ago that that's one powerful way that people connect to the Civil War is understanding that they had ancestors that played roles in it. And that's been tough for our African-American neighbors to do that. But I really think that Camp Nelson can be a place where that could be, you could break through that ceiling there and start to make real connections. It's a lofty aspiration, but I think it's one we need to, to try because Camp Nelson is very unique in that way. So I think with that uniqueness comes the responsibility uh, to try to capture it. And I, I think your site is well situated and set up to realize that the fact that you even just have the names of the people who were enslaved to build the site, that means so much to those family members who can actually make those connections and actually do research back to their ancestors. Yeah, and think about it too. They have the name of the owners and the home county. So now mm. you've got slave census records that you can now jump from that labor list and go back to an earlier slave census and see the 23-year-old male that was living in Woodford County at such and such a household. And that's really a powerful leap that you couldn't have made from the 1870 census. You know, we get excited about this, this opportunity. Um, it's a lot of work, but that's one of the challenges and opportunities about being a new park, trying to recognize what we should set up, what we should establish, and the trajectory that we should set it's a lot of responsibility, but good for us. We're right place, right time. Let's do this and build something that will be meaningful 10, 20 years down the road because it is uniquely situated, as you say, and, and maybe get some people excited about learning some things that they maybe didn't realize they could have learned or that we could have known. Well, thank you for shedding some light on your site and for sharing all the opportunities that visitors will have when they come to visit, um, whether that's hiking some beautiful trails standing at the crossroads of our nation's history, or even just doing some family research to learn more about where they came from and how their family played a role in all that complicated and interesting history. Absolutely. A pleasure. Appreciate you having me on. We look forward to seeing additional visitors. To learn more about Camp Nelson National Monument or to plan your visit, you can visit their website at www.nps.gov slash c a N E or by calling 859-881-5716. Thank you for joining me at the Park Less Traveled. Please follow us on our Facebook page for more details on the parks we discussed today. If you visited these parks or have suggestions for future Parks Less Traveled, 
I'd love to hear from you on the page. Tune in to our next episode to hear about the parks least traveled as we give you the rundown on America's national parks with the lowest visitation numbers. You'll be shocked by how few people visit these hidden gems. But enough talk. Get out there and explore your park less traveled. <laughs>